Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Marty is a delight to have here and a delight to introduce, especially to a room full of people who was interested in learning about mind-body medicine. Marty Rossman has probably done more to bring integrative medicine to where it's at, especially regarding mind-body medicine, than any other one person I will ever get to introduce or perhaps even get to shake hands with. Uh, Marty was uh, very early on was the uh, one of the proponents of medical acupuncture. He was a founding board member of the American something or other, American Board of American Academy of Medical Acupuncture, he tells me. Uh, He has been instrumental in developing guided imagery to the robust field it is today. Uh, He works as well a great deal with hypnosis, um, with many different techniques to help uh, calm calm us down, to help us get to a point of relaxation. using hypnosis, self-hypnosis, biofeedback, body work, but especially guided imagery. Um, He is a member of the advisory board for the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and I was interested to discover he's also a member of the advisory board for the Rosenthal Center for Complementary Medicine at Columbia University in New York. I've known Marty for a number of years now. I've been privileged to attend several talks that he's given. I know that he's a great speaker. Well, thank you very much. It was very kind of you to say. Good evening, everybody. So how many of you have ever worried about anything? Is anybody here ever worried about anything? Okay, good. That's our topic tonight. And of course, uh, everybody worries sometimes. And some people worry all the time. And uh, if you're one of those people who finds themselves worried all the time, I think that you might get something very useful. I hope that you'll get something very useful out of tonight's talk. If you just worry intermittently, I hope you get something useful anyhow, but you probably don't need it quite as much. So I'm calling my topic tonight Worrying Well. And um, I'm still looking for a subtitle, but tonight we'll call it How to Use Your Brain to Relieve Anxiety and Stress and Turn It into More Desirable Things Like Calmness and Confidence. Worry, I think, gets a lot of bad press because we don't use it very well. And so when I call it worrying well, it's really about what is worry, how do we do it, what's the purpose of it, is it possible that worry has a positive function, which it does. Uh, worry basically is an adaptive function. It's, some, it's something that allows us to go over and over something in our minds in an attempt to solve a problem or resolve a situation. So I think that that's the adaptive. You know, we humans have been born with faculties in our brain that, as far as we know, don't belong to any other creature on Earth. And it has allowed us to, you know, to come from being a pretty vulnerable prey animal on the African savanna to becoming the dominant creature on Earth. It's, you know, we... We don't have many tools for survival. If you look at a human as an animal, um, you know, we're pretty vulnerable. You know, we don't run very fast. We don't have big teeth. We don't have big claws. Um, 
you know, we can swim a little bit, but not very well. We can't fly very well. So out there, you know, without a lot of technology and on the African savanna, we are meat, basically. And, um, and we've got systems built into our system that we inherited and from the development of other prey animals that lead to things like fight and flight response, which are adaptive in some situations and maladaptive in another. But one of the things that are, one of the qualities that we've developed is, or one of the mental abilities and functions is, is imagination. It's, I could really make a strong case that imagination is, is one of the key things and maybe the key mental faculty that separates the human from not from all other forms of life. Imagination lets us remember things from the past. It lets us project things into the future and think about how things would be in the future if you did something this way or that way. You know, and everything that exists on earth that wasn't made by God or nature, whatever pick take your pick or some combination of the two. Everything else that exists, everything that humankind has created, started in somebody's imagination. That's where it made its first appearance on Earth, is somebody's imagination. Oh, we could do that. You know, could make it round, it'll roll. We could chip these, you know. They notice that two rocks chipping together makes fire, and they figured out a way to do that. So imagination... You could make a case that outside of God or nature that the human imagination is the most powerful force on earth. And the thing is, very few of us have ever really been taught how to use it. Most of our education, especially all the way through to higher education, is on using other mental faculties which also have made us very powerful. The ability to analyze, the ability to calculate, the you know... Um, linear, logical, rational, scientific ways of thinking have also contributed to us being very powerful uh, because they allow us to take the things that we imagine and make them real in a certain way. But a lot starts in the imagination. Worry is a function of imagination. If you didn't have an imagination, you wouldn't be worried. That's what lobotomies are about. And that's what, a lot of, that's what certain medications are about. So we used to joke at our Academy for Guided Imagery, you know, that if we could find a simple, non-toxic way to do an imaginectomy, we could resolve everybody's worry and stress problems. You know, you, would, you just wouldn't be very worried. You wouldn't do much either. You wouldn't be creative, you know, you wouldn't, but you wouldn't be worried if we could do that. So I think rather than taking the imagination out, what we want to do is learn how to use it better. And so a lot of what I'm going to share with you about worrying well or worrying more effectively has to do with how you use your imagination. So worry and stress have a lot of overlap, right? And we often use them interchangeably. I'm going to spend a little time to differentiate these things a little bit, but they do overlap quite a bit. And then anxiety also overlaps with worry and stress. They're all a little bit different, and they're very interrelated. Um, they share in a lot of different kinds of ways. The reason this is important is because our consciousness and our ability to become self-conscious is potentially the greatest tool that we have for improving our lives. And it also, if we don't know how to use it, can be something that can make our life miserable. 
So I like this Ashley brilliant quote, you know, due to circumstances beyond my control, I am master of my fate and captain of my soul. So like you're it. If you want to do something about your anxiety, your stress, the way that you think, the way that you create your life, you know, you you are the captain whether you whether you like it or not. Um, so we might as well learn how to use these capacities because there's really no going back. I think sometimes unconsciously we try to go back with other ways of managing anxiety and stress like drinking too much or taking drugs or medications or eating too much, all the millions of ways we have of going unconscious and kind of trying to just put our head in the sand and maybe it'll go away, which it frequently does. So it's it's not that it's not a good strategy in the short run, but as a f- total life plan, it's kind of lacking. Okay, it won't take you where you want to go. So how are worry, stress, and anxiety different? So worry is a type of, this is how I think about it, and I can be argued with. I'm not sure that any of this is absolutely true. Um, kind of throwing it out there. I'm writing a book on it. So if I'm wrong, please tell me before the book is written. Um, but it seems to me that worry is a type of thinking. Okay? It's a, and our friend here, Ziggy, says, the figments of my imagination are out to get me. That's kind of the most common use of the imagination, is just letting your imagination kind of go to the worst scene scenarios, getting kind of entranced or hypnotized by, by your worries, you know, and uh, letting your imagination scare you. Because I think, in a sense, the most, common, the most common unconscious use of the imagination is to drive ourselves crazy or worry ourselves sick. So the bar is set pretty low. That's the good news. We can learn to use it more on purpose and do better than that. So worry is a type of thinking. It's a repetitive kind of thinking, sometimes a rumination. It's generally troubled. It often has to do with things that are either in the past or in the future. Okay, it's, it's the opposite of be here now. Okay, it's the opposite of present center. That doesn't mean it's bad. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a function. But it's, we're in our brain, we're thinking about something, we're going over and over and over it. And again, I think that's because the adaptive function of worry, I always assume that something is there, is an attempt by, by nature or by life to solve a problem or to give us an advantage. So if you think about what could the advantage be of being able to go over a problem over and over and over in my mind? Well, I think it's kind of like if you have a big tangled ball of yarn or or thread, you know, and you're you're trying to untangle it and you find a place that's loose and you pull it for a while and you get some some looseness and then it gets stuck again so you turn the ball over and you find another loose place and you free up some more stuff and you turn it over again and you free up some more stuff. And if you keep doing that, turning it over and over, looking at it from different angles, finding the loose places, finding where things are knotted together, excuse me, if you persevere with it, more, you know, more often than not, you're going to get that whole thing untangled. And then go on to the next tangled mess that you find. Okay, But you are likely to get that one untangled. And I think that's the function of worry. It lets us, it makes our it makes our concerns transportable, you know, so you can think about it at any time, and that can be an advantage or a disadvantage 
And I think that that depends on whether you're using your brain or, or you're being run by it. Your brain is an incredible organ. Your mind has something to do with it. And um, at least in certain circumstances, your mind can learn to use your brain in better ways. That's what this is about. So it's very easy, though, for this adaptive function of problem-solving and turning things over and over to become a habit or to become repetitive and to become ruminative and just kind of become its own thing. And I, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is that worry can serve kind of a magical function. There's a magical unconscious function of worry, um, a couple of them actually. So one is that most things that you worry about never happen. Most things that you worry about never happen. And if you, you know, that's an old rubric that we've all heard, and I found myself wondering, well, is that really true? So I've been teaching this as a six-week class, this Worrying Well class. I've taught it a few times now, and I've asked people over the, at the beginning of the class to list all the things that they find themselves repetitively worrying about. And then sometime later on, we've just checked in with the first class, which was about nine months ago, to see how many of those things have happened. And not very many of them have happened. So I don't know if anybody's ever studied that really before, but you could do it yourself by writing them down and then check in in about six months or a year. Now, the interesting thing about that, the way that the brain works is, at some unconscious level of the brain, it the brain could conclude that the thing didn't happen because you worried about it, right? That's a function of, and there's an old story about a woman who walks around her house. She's an old woman, she's walking around her house every day, mumbling, walking around her house, walking around her house. She walks around her house all day long until she's carved a rut around her house and then goes up to about the middle of her thighs. And finally, one of their neighbors can't take it anymore, and he, he goes over and he says, you know, I hope you don't mind if I ask you why you walk around your house all the day, every day. And she says, well, I'm keeping it safe from tigers. And he says, well, you know, we're in Indiana. There aren't any tigers here. And she says, see? <laughs> okay. So it's possible that we get rewarded for worrying because so many of those things don't happen. And at some magical, unconscious, primitive level of thought, those two things could possibly be connected. The other thing that has been researched is that in sometimes worrying about things distracts us from things that are actually bothering us. So that worrying about little things and do lists and so on and so forth and always fussing and always worrying and always having something to fuss up about and to worry about actually distracts us from something that might be deeper and more emotional and uh, and actually be harder for us to take. So, and, and we know that that's a function. That's actually been studied. So that worry prevents deeper, richer, more emotion-laden thinking, which typically comes in images and comes in the quiet times, you know. So if there's a lot of feeling there that's hard to process or hard to feel or that's unprocessed and that, and that we've never dealt with, it's, 
in a sense, useful to keep the mind very busy. Because if you get quiet, your emotions will come up. And ultimately, we think that that's a good thing. Emotions are natural, they're healthy, they have a wisdom to them that most of us have not also been educated in. But they can be hard to feel, you know. Nobody, very few people have very much trouble feeling joy. Um, Although a lot of times we're blocked from feeling joy because we are unable or unwilling to feel other emotions. When you start feeling one emotion, you know, the others go, hey, the door's open. And they might want to kind of come up and be felt. Uh, So there are functions of worry. And again, some of them unconscious, magical, maybe not in our best interest over time. Others, adaptive, problem-solving, go over the problem. So it, it behooves us to kind of learn what we're doing with the worry, and that gives us choices in terms of what we're doing with the rest. Okay, So worry is a thinking function. Whereas anxiety, anxiety is, a, you know, is an uncomfortable feeling. It's usually in the chest or the upper abdomen. Not always, but it's most often up in this area or this area. It's an uncomfortable feeling of fear or apprehension or dread. Dread is a, it's, a, it's that feeling, oh my God, something bad is going to happen. I know it. Something bad is going to happen. You don't know, you may, it may be attached to something, or it may be free-floating and not attached to, to anything. And anxiety often comes with physical symptoms like rapid heartbeat, uh, pain in the chest, sweating, you know, shortness of breath. Um, there's often a feeling with anxiety, if anxiety is very strong, like panic attacks, um, there's often a very characteristic feeling that comes with panic attacks, and the feeling is of is impending doom. People with panic attacks, they feel they're about to die. And it's often, again, since the symptoms are often in the chest or in the abdomen, we see these things in medicine all the time. And you could you could really make a case for, you know, one of the, Maybe the primary function of a primary care doctor is seeing if there's anything else but anxiety going on. Because anxiety can cause so many symptoms in so many systems of the body and make us, and make us afraid. Um, sense that something bad's going to happen. Anxiety is a function of a part of the brain that is a, the emotional part of the brain. It's called the limbic system or the emotional brain. So worry belongs to the thinking part of the brain. You know, and there's a lot of interaction, but worry belongs in the thinking part of the brain, the cortex. Anxiety typically comes from the limbic or emotional part of the brain, and I'll show you what that looks like. And stress, which is the third leg of our uncomfortable stool here, is actually a physical response to a threat, real or imagined. And, um, and in modern life, most of the threats are either perceived or imagined, but they're not, you know, we, so somebody's probably told you the story of the saber-toothed tiger and the fight-or-flight response and so on, you know, that this is a response we think was designed by nature, so when you walked out of the cave and you ran into a big predator, like a saber-toothed tiger, your part of your nervous system fires off and you get a big shot of adrenaline and your heart beats faster and you... Uh, your blood clots faster, and your blood pressure goes up, and your muscles get supercharged, and you're ready to run or uh, 
you know, run the fastest two miles you've ever run in your life or fight the tiger to death, you know. And then it supercharges you. It's that kind of thing we hear about when the mother moves a car to save a, save a baby. The thing is that this response can go off in response to threats that are not predators, that are not, it can go off in response to stock market movements, economic changes, um, thinking about aging, um, thinking about whether you can meet your responsibilities, all kinds of stuff, and all kinds of stuff that is, that unless you know where the off button is on your television or your radio or your computer, that you can just literally pump into your, into your brain you know, 24-7 if you stay up. All the bad news of every bad thing that has happened around the world to anybody. Or if it's a slow news day, what could happen? Okay, you know, like the H1N1 flu. Because it's not a terribly, doesn't look like a terribly dangerous flu right now, but it could become really dangerous. You know, and that's what's got everybody scared. And everybody freaked out and standing in line. What could happen? So, and yes, there's a balance between, again, being able to predict the future and take measures to prevent things happening that don't need to happen and freaking out for months about something that probably will never happen. It's a yin-yang kind of relationship. So stress, is the important thing here is that stress is a physical response. It's not stuff that happens to you. It's a physical response that your body has to survive a short-term th- stress. And if you survive that short-term stress, like fight, like the saber-toothed tiger, you know, you've either killed it or you've run away from it and run the, you know, as fast as you can, climb the highest tree that you can. You burned up all these stress chemicals. And when the tiger goes away, you kind of limp back to the cave and breathe a big sigh of relief and tell everybody about how you killed the tiger or ran away from the tiger and and your body rested and compensated and recharged itself and replaced all the chemicals that it used during that intense 20 to 30 minute fight. You know, or else the tiger has eaten you and you don't have any more stress, you know. But one way or another, it's all over in about 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> okay? So there's none of this, like, uh, years, you know, of stress that go on if you're a good worrier, where you wake up in the morning and the first thing on your mind is, Oh my God, what's going to happen with this? Am I going to be able to do this? And am I going to be able to meet that? And so on and so forth. And of course, the really good warriors are not only doing it during the daytime, you're up at night too because you can't sleep. Right? And so it's taking your, and that takes your resilience away and it becomes a real, you know, negative, vicious cycle. So, to review, worry is a type of repetitive circular thinking. Anxiety is an uncomfortable feeling of fear or dread. Stress is a physical response that prepares you to meet challenges. And so it's interesting to look at, this is a sort of a somewhat dated model of the brain. It's called the triune brain. Um, But, you know, it's good enough for government work. Uh, We can work with this model. Okay, this is that there is what's called the cortical brain or the neocortex, the big gray matter, wrinkled, big brain that we're so proud of that allows us to speak and add and calculate and reason and so on and so forth and imagine and do all these things that, again, as far as we know, no other creature on earth does. 
and that is really the most adaptive thing, you know, has helped us survive and dominate. Lower down, limbic system, midbrain, okay? The basic brain, we call it the reptilian brain, that's the brain we share with lizards, you know, and reptiles and amphibians. That's the oldest part of the brain. That part of the brain basically concerned with survival. It basically sorts things into, you know, two or three categories. You know, can I eat? Can I eat this? Can it eat me? Can I mate with it? That's basically what it's concerned with. Okay. Sorts down all the information that you receive into those three things. Okay, and and it acts like that. It acts reflexively and instantaneously, just like if you come across a lizard, you know, on the path, and you make a move towards it, it's gone like that. It doesn't go inside. It doesn't do a Woody Allen thing. You know, well, should I move? Should I not move? Would it be better for me to? Is this dangerous? Is it not dangerous? How dangerous is it? It doesn't do any of it. It's just gone. Okay, there's any indication that there's a threat, it sets off the stress response, and it's gone. The thing is, this developed evolutionarily from the bottom up. Okay, this was this part of the brain developed first, and then as animals developed, the limbic system pretty much developed in mammals and other in warm, furry creatures who characteristically have social relationships. And where and for mammals, for most mammals, not all mammals, social relationships like like prides of lions and packs of wolves and families of people and things like that have adaptive value. We do better when we're connected to groups. We have more strength. We have more problem-solving ability. We have emotional support. We are social creatures, and our social positions mean a lot to us. And all that emotional processing happens mostly in this limbic system. And then on top of it, the big, smart, intellectual brain. Every layer added new possibilities and new complexity to our ability to understand our world and to navigate our world. And part of the problem when we look at this whole issue is that the new guy is very entranced with himself. Okay, The thinking brain thinks that nothing was important before he came along. And I say he kind of deliberately. It could be she too. But it's a, it's a kind of... It's not that there, you know, that there are tremendously bright and intellectual women, but the kind of thinking, analysis, logic, um, that kind of thinking, on a yin-yang scale, we typically characterize as a kind of masculine thinking, not that it doesn't belong to women, too, whereas the feeling, the intuitive, tends to be a more kind of receptive, softer, has its own logic, but it's not the same as the logic of mathematics and science, okay? So this brain is very good at, especially part of the brain, the part that's suited for, for verbal and, and uh, mathematical skills, which typically is in the left hemisphere of the brain. And there's some variation, but that typically is in the left brain, which is called the dominant hemisphere, speech capability, mathematical capability, and so on. Whereas in the right side of the brain, in the same area, lie areas of the brain that have to do with the body image, with emotional recognition of facial expressions and tone of voice and those kinds of skills. So they each have their place. You know, I mean, logical skills have to do with building buildings like this and building MRIs and doing the kind of incredible science that goes on in a university 
setting like ECSF and looking through electron microscopes and doing chemical analyses. And these are tremendous feats. Don't misunderstand me. They're completely useless in a relationship. Okay? It doesn't matter how many Nobel Prizes you have, you may not be able to maintain a marriage. Would be If that's the only kind of intelligence you have, Right, and we see, uh, then you may not be able to maintain good relationships with people. Whereas somebody who emotionally and in terms of social networking and understanding and compassion and empathy may have a different kind of intelligence as well as an intellectual kind of intelligence. So my point is that these are different kinds of intelligences that are useful in different situations. What has happened since the advent of you know the age of reason? And which is, you know, and the advent of discovering the immense power of our intellectual capabilities, I think, has been a devaluing and, a, and an ignoring of the earlier kind of intelligence that has to do with our relations with each other and with other living things and with our environment. And I think that a lot of the crisis we're seeing now is we're trying to come back to that and own those relationships while still maintaining our ability to be technically. Uh, creative and, and help solve those problems that way. I think that, you know, these have been around a lot longer. This guy's really fascinated with himself and sometimes thinks, you know, he's the only game in town. So the reason we used to say, you know, when we were talking about left and right hemisphere, and I don't want to go into it too deeply tonight, but the reason that the left hemisphere is called the dominant hemisphere, can anybody guess? It does dominate. But the main reason that it's called the dominant hemisphere is that it's the one that names things. It's the verbal hemisphere. It's the one that gives people things. So it said, I'm the dominant hemisphere, and you're the subdominant hemisphere. I'm the major hemisphere, you're the minor hemisphere. And it's kind of, kind of a joke, but I think it's also true. And we have valued that. Think about your education. How many hours of emotional education did you get? How many hours of education and using your imagination did you get? Or your intuition? So your education, and I'm not saying that, you know, it was hopefully, at least when I went to school, it was reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, it was those left brain analytic logical skills. Tremendously, tremendously useful. But not all of us. And this other kind of intelligence, I think we need a lot more education experience with it, learn how to, how to communicate with it. And that's why in a little while I'm going to talk about imagery, which is its coding language in a sense of this more emotional and intuitive brain. So here's a kind of a picture of a real brain cut in half this way. Um, and I don't know how well you can see this, but, you know, there's the wrinkled cortex, neocortex that goes all the way around. And then in the center, this area here, more or less, is the limbic or emotional brain. And you can see that there's, and then this would be the reptilian reflexive survival brain. And you can see there's lots of connections between, you know, between the two so that this brain could send messages into this brain and create an emotional reaction, which would send messages down to this part of the brain and send it out to the body, and vice versa. Like for this guy. So this guy's having a rage. He's not having a good day. He's having a rage reaction. And without going through all of these things, just, you know, if you want to study this, you can, but something 
didn't match up with his expectations. Okay? That's where most anger comes from. He had an expectation. Something didn't come up to it. It sent some kind of a message of danger or threat to this emotional brain. It signaled his, uh, his uh, lower brain that, to get ready for a fight. And this thing sends out through all the cranial nerves and spinal cord and so on messages to every organ in his body. And your physiology changes very dramatically when you're angry, when you're frightened, when you're sad, when you're happy, when you're calm. You are physiologically different than, okay, so there's plenty of connections. And this is basically just to show, yes, there's a real wiring diagram and a real chemical messaging system. So anxiety, stress, and worry are interactive. They're bi-directional. If you, if you have a tendency to be anxious, that emotional brain is going to be pumping out more messages of look out, look out, look out, look out, look out. It may not know what it's looking out for, but it's going to be more vigilant. It's going to raise the, it's going to send more messages to the cortex to be on guard for problems. And then the cortex is going to be able to imagine all the problems that there could be out there. And it's going to send messages back, and they can get into a real kind of a reverberating circuit. All these parts of the brain are chemically sensitive. And, you know, of course, in medicine, typically we try to chemically manipulate these things. If somebody's got a real anxiety disorder, we're not talking about anxiety disorders, which where the anxiety level is just cranked up high in spite of the thinking here. Um, but we try to manipulate that with medications. Those of us who have studied nutritional medicine know that there are naturally occurring molecules, that there are molecules in our foods that can be used as nutraceuticals to, mod to modify how active or upregulated the nervous system is or downregulated. So we try to do it through more natural molecules. Uh, but the other thing to know about this is that they're also thought-sensitive, that thoughts at... A chemi become chemicals at a certain level, and those chemicals stimulate the physical mechanisms that underlie our reaction. So, and that's going to be our focus tonight is about thinking. For any of you who um, have any doubts that the mind and body are, connect are really connected and create physiology, just real quick, this is biofeedback data. And to make it simple, this is, uh, this is muscle tension, this is electrical response in the skin. This is fingertip temperature, which is a sign of either stress or relaxation. This nice, even white line here is respiration. So this guy is sitting in a biofeedback therapist's office with a bunch of sensors hooked up to his muscles and his fingertips to measure his, his, the way that his um, circulation responds to stress. And he's got a belt around his chest. And he's just breathing nice and nor uh, and around his abdomen. This is actually his abdomen. And he's breathing nice and normally, even. He's just sitting there relaxing. There's not much going on. So you won't be able to read all this stuff. Just watch what happens here. So he's a guy. There's an actual patient who has a phobia about driving over bridges. And he lives here. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Bad combination, right? Um, so he's sitting, so he goes to the biofeedback therapist. Here he's just sitting there relaxing. Then the biofeedback therapist asks him just to think about, just imagine approaching the Golden Gate Bridge. And all of this goes in the same direction. There's an immediate fight or flight response. 
just goes off and is from imagining driving across the bridge. You can see at best here what happens to his breathing. It just goes to pot. It's just very shallow, very irregular. He stops breathing into his abdomen. Um, you know, his skin temperature, actually, this is reversed. It should go decrease. His muscle tension goes up. He's physiologically ready to defend his life by imagining going to the bridge. Now, if he can learn to get his breathing under control again and his therapist can guide him to think about some other things that are more relaxing, they typically break it down. Just just think about coming down the stairs and seeing your car keys in a person who's developed a phobia, that would be enough to stimulate a huge reaction. Now, if the person then can learn to breathe more deeply and to induce a relaxation response, which most people can, um, while he's imagining that, go back to the calm physiology, by the time he gets to the place where he can actually imagine driving across the bridge and staying calm, he'll be able to go across that bridge. That could take months to get to. There's a lot of practice in here, but that's a that's a good example of a mind-body connection and how much we respond to just thinking about things. So there's a lot of... How many have heard the term neuroplasticity? Has that been talked about here? So it doesn't mean your brain is made of plastic. It means that your brain is changeable. And there's been a lot of literature lately about how changeable the adult human brain is. Up until very recently, the dictum was, you know, you have an adult brain, that's it. Your cells die off, but that's about it. And you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and it's all that kind of stuff. And we know now, how many of you have read this book by Norman Doidge, The Brain That Changes Itself? It's an astounding book on brain science. A couple of, uh, an example, there are researchers now that have developed techniques sending, taking people who have been blind since birth, hooking up a little video camera to an electric device that kind of draws a picture on their back by poking them, you know, kind of a, a thing that puts out multiple little pokes and gives them a picture on their back, and they start to see. Okay, they can see so that they can walk around. Now they have it where a little video camera on the glass goes to a little wafer on the tongue that sends out little electrical signals. And they start, and they are able to see, probably not like most of us who are able to see naturally and normally, but they are able to see they can walk around the room and not bump into objects and so on and so forth. Okay? And what happens over time, what they found was in these people that watching a device called a functional MRI, which can show us what parts of the brain are active while people are thinking, that it was the part of the brain, the occipital cortex, that processes visual information that took all of this data from their back or their tongue and started putting pictures together. So the brain's taking this this data and putting pictures together because that's what it does. Normally it gets the input from your eye. But if we can get at the information some other way, it can create new pathways that create these abilities. And that's astounding. So part of uh, Jeffrey Schwartz is at UCLA. His research has been with people with obsessive compulsive disorder, which has been a traditionally a very, very difficult condition to treat. And finding that by very structured, repetitive exercises, which fortunately obsessive compulsive people are very good at. <laughs> Um, 
by focusing their mind in a certain way that they literally can change not only their behavioral patterns but that their brains change after a period after a decent period we're talking about months of practice so that you can actually lay new hardwiring down as well as changing your mind you know you can change your mind in a nanosecond but it take it seems to take weeks to months to change your brain but when you change your brain now you've got a new default position installed and you don't have to be the same way that you were before uh, Lou Ann Brizendine who's a professor of psychiatry here at UCSF wrote this one how many have read this book the female brain if you never read another book in your life if you're and if you're either male or female you should read this book this is an astounding book a really astounding book about the brain and how it's organized and and um, and what different capabilities there are. Both genders have similar capabilities, but um, it's a bit of a digression, but it was tremendously useful to me to learn from this book that at eight weeks, you know, all, all fetuses as they're growing in the womb are female, or are male at the beginning. And at eight weeks, yeah, at eight weeks, they're all female. They're all female. At eight weeks, the, the, the fetus with the Y chromosome gets a wash of testosterone. And do you know what that testosterone does to the brain? You're going to love this. It explains so much. It kills 80% of the neurons in the male brain that process emotional communication. This is apparently brain science. And when they get it again when they're 14 and 15, I don't know how many of you remember being 14 or 15, or if you have a 14 or 15-year-old son who sits at the table like this and looks like a cretin and spends all of his time in the room, in his room, and, you know, is barely human, and he was a brilliant, loving little kid, you know. He's got testosterone poisoning, which is, again... <laughs> Seriously, is again killing neurons in his brain that have to do with emotional communication. And increasing the parts of his brain that have to do with sexuality and aggressiveness. Okay. While the female's brain is still maintaining this big part, about four to five times as much brain area devoted to emotional communication, to talking about sensing emotional nuances. Which is why, in general, you ladies are so much better at it than we are, and you like to talk to each other about all that stuff. You like to talk to us about it. You don't understand why we don't understand. Okay, this would be like, and this is no offense, I need a better archetype, but this would be like my dog, who has 20,000 times the neuron, smell neurons in his nose than I do. This would be like my dog asking me, why don't you smell that Jake was here earlier. I'm sniffing this book. Why don't you, you know, I'm living in a world of s smell. Smell is all around us. It's a world of smell to the dog, right? I don't smell any of it. I don't hear the high-pitched sounds because his brain is tuned differently. So this has saved my marriage, this discovery. <laughs> And when you wonder, and when the guys, you know, these are all overgeneralizations, and I'm playing it up a little bit, but your guy may not be able to tell what you're feeling as easily as you can tell what he's feeling. 
It's a different world. He just may not. He's just like, and this is what guys always say to each other. Why is she mad? I don't get it. Why is she mad? I asked her out to lunch on Tuesday. She got mad at me. I don't know why, you know. So mystery, one mystery not exactly solved, but the brains are organized differently. It's really fascinating. That is a great read. All right, I'm going to go and go on before I get stoned here. The brain changes throughout life, and here is the basis of my interest in thinking about how we think, thinking about how we worry, that if the blind can learn to see, then the anxious should be able to learn to relax. I would think it's much easier to learn to relax than it is to see when you've never seen before. I may be wrong, but this is kind of at the center of it. If our brain is capable of that kind of learning, then what do we need to do in order to teach it? And this is a great term that comes from Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA, self-directed neuroplasticity, which is fascinating because you're using your own mind to change your own brain. Really an interesting concept. It's one of my favorite Gary Larson cartoons that has to do with this. This is the ultimate self, self-help technique. And the, the guys here are reading these books like Do It By Instinct and, you know, Dare to Be Nocturnal, <laughs> Predator-Prey Relationships. And the best one, of course, is How to Avoid Natural Selection, which is <laughs> So this is ultimately, I mean, our greatest self-care tool. So let's talk about how we can think about this. And this is how I'm thinking about it now. I'm thinking that there's good worry and bad worry. And by that, I mean good worry is functional worry. It's worry that's trying to solve a problem and that has some potential to solve a problem. And that, and if we separate our worries into good worries and bad or futile worries, okay, we can treat each one of them in a different manner. We can use our brain in a different way. So good worry is, you know, I'm worried about this project. I'm worried about where to go to school. I'm worried about whether I'm going to be able to pay for my kid's education. Real stuff to worry about. It's not that there's any lack of real stuff to worry about. But stuff that if you asked yourself, is it likely that I could actually do something about this? That you would say either yes or maybe. As opposed to when you actually write out the stuff you're worrying about, a lot of times you'll find out you know, you look at stuff and you say, well, you know, I can't do much about that. 2012. You know, gee, I'm worried that the words can end in 2012. Yeah, what are you going to do about that? Okay, are you likely to be able to do anything about that? You might want to put that on your bad worry list, okay? And uh, just enjoy the movie as a, as a great uh, roller coaster ride. So good worry anticipates and solves problems. Bad worry, circular, habitual, magical, doesn't go anywhere, doesn't lead to solutions, scares you. In a sense, it starts to become a type of auto-suggestion, right? Because you're thinking about this thing all the time. You're scaring yourself. You're sending, out, you're sending off those fear pathways, and that makes it harder to use your brain when you're feeling that way. And so how many of you are familiar with this serenity prayer? How many of you have heard of it before? Okay. I won't ask how many of you are in 12-step programs. The 12-step programs adopted the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer goes back probably as far as Roman times. 
and then in modern times was was attributed to a theologian in World War II, but the the 12-step programs have adopted it. It's a brilliant prayer thought. If you don't like prayer, just take off the God word. Okay, but the serenity prayer goes, God, or whatever, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay? So if we use the serenity prayer as kind of the skeleton of our worrying well practice, we want to think about separating things we're worrying about into things you can change, things you probably can't change. And then if there are some that are left over that you're not sure of, where you need the wisdom to know the difference, I'm going to talk to you at least about ways that you can use imagery to help with all three of those things. So the first question is, if you're not sure about something and you need more wisdom, how do you get more wisdom besides living another 30 or 40 years? Okay? By which time, I mean, that's not all that useful when you've got an immediate problem. So there's, you know, there's ways, ordinary ways to access more wisdom. Talk to people that you think are wise. If you have wise friends, if you have wise teachers, see if they'll talk to you. And you can share your problem, listen to them, consider what they say. That's one good source of wisdom. Um, this stands for what would Jesus, Buddha, the Dalai Lama, or Yoda do? <laughs> so... If you don't have access to a wise friend or teacher, you know, this is a type of imagery technique. Think about what would somebody that you imagine is genuinely wise, what would they say in that situation? Remember Hillary Clinton got all kinds of flack from people when she was the first lady because she said she, she was in a circumstance where she wasn't sure what to do and she thought a lot about Eleanor Roosevelt and what Eleanor Roosevelt would have done in that situation and of course, you know, all the kooks got up on their, you know, oh, she's into spiritualism and so on and so forth. It, you know, she's conjuring the ghost of Eleanor Roosevelt. No, she was imagining what a wise, ethical role model would do in that situation. It's a perfectly natural and very intelligent thing to do. What would somebody with class and wisdom and caring and morals do in this situation? You know? And if you took it another step and you do it as a guided imagery where you actually relax, you go into a meditative or relax, just a relaxed state, and you kind of daydream that you were walking in the garden with Eleanor Roosevelt and you told her what was going on and you imagined that she spoke back to you, you know, that's not spooky. As long as you know, you know, that it's not really Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, or if it is that she's, you know, that you're not identifying with her. You're not the person in the crazy house who thinks that they're Jesus, you know. But you could imagine what Jesus would say, what Jesus would do, if Jesus is important and meaningful to you. Or what the Dalai Lama would do, or what your wise grandmother would do, or what your wise grandmother would do if you had a wise grandmother, right? So you start, you start accessing, what, what would it be like if, there, if I were to approach this from a wise place? And you take the time to quiet down. You take the time to get deeper inside. And that's what we do with an imagery we sometimes call inner wisdom imagery or inner advisor, inner guide, uh, inner ally, inner whatever. You can have your higher power, uh, guardian angel, 
you know, people call have called this by different names throughout uh, throughout history, and some people feel like, well, you are calling on on a spirit, and other people feel like it's just a way to get to the part of my brain that it, that it has this wisdom, because there is a part of all of us that has a lot of wisdom. You know, when it comes out, it comes out when your friend's in trouble and your friend comes to you for advice because they can't figure it out, right? And have you ever noticed how easy it is to give advice to your friends? Good advice, usually. And if it's a serious thing, you, you take time to think about it. You know, you don't just give them a glib answer. You take some time and you think about it. And you, you, you go down as deep as you can inside yourself and you give them that wise advice. The thing is, it's probably easier for you to get to your wisdom than your friend if your friend is really frightened. Because when we are frightened, when we're anxious, when we're worried, there's a psychological phenomenon called regression. We tend to regress. We tend to feel like we're, we're too little, we're too weak, we don't have the resources, we don't know what to do. We, we're wishing that somebody bigger, wiser, stronger were there to tell us what to do. And we, we feel more childlike, and that blocks our access to our own wisdom. And that's why taking the time to go to actually do a relaxation practice, relax your body, shift your mind, imagine that you go to a place that's beautiful and peaceful and safe so that you get out of that fearful loop. You imagine or you invite an image of someone or something that's wise and loving and that cares about you, whether it's someone or something you've ever met or something you just make up. You just imagine, and you imagine what it would tell you or show you or do with you. And it's quite remarkable what can come from a meditation like this. Um, does that make sense to people? And so it's easier to do that for your friend because as much as you love your friend, you're probably not going to be as freaked out as they are if it's a serious situation. So we see this all the time. You know, the, the most common place that I see this in my practice is in people who've just been newly diagnosed with cancer. And they're just shocked and freaked out, as most people are. And in, the, and in the meantime, they're visiting all these different doctors and oncologists and trying to become an oncologist in like two weeks and learn the whole field of oncology and figure out their best option, while emotionally they're feeling like a three-year-old. You know, so, And it's very difficult for them to make good decisions that way. These kinds of techniques, if you start early and help them connect to a deeper level and not that scared child can really make a difference in terms of wise decision-making. So sometimes they give, you know, your inner advisor will say something like this. The secret of living without frustration and worry is to avoid becoming personally involved in your own life. This is, a, this is definitely a good treatment for worry, okay? But usually, and that's not bad advice. Here's how I think this thing kind of works. So if we go through this process of thinking about the worries, I actually have people in class write them down and then go through and separate them. I mean, it sounds mechanical. It's just using our ordinary intelligence. Separate them into three columns, things you think you could change if you wanted to, things you think you couldn't change if you wanted to, and things that you're not sure about. And people rarely do this, and so we carry it around in our head. Just writing it down is often very helpful for people and sorting it out. And then where we want to get to is down here, either if it's something you can't change, you know, basically what you want to do is get to a place where you either get to a place of some kind of acceptance, some kind of coming to terms, 
Um, or you turn it around into an intention or a prayer. So in other words, you're worrying about something that something's going to happen, but it's not something that you can physically do something about. It's interesting to see what happens if you take it and you turn it around and you put it into a positive visualization of what you would rather have happen. Okay, so, and I'm going to skip the whole argument here about whether or not that has a physical effect, and like the secret, you know, whether we just make something happen by changing our intention. Sometimes it seems that we do, and sometimes we don't. But what does happen when people, in other words, so, so some friend gets diagnosed with cancer, and you are overcome with worry because you are just worried that she's going to die. Okay, or be sick or go through some horrendous thing because you care for your friend. That's a typically normal reaction. But you find yourself losing sleep and you're thinking about it and you're getting obsessed with it and so on and so forth. Well, and there's nothing more that you can do. You're, you're bringing her food and you're a source of support and so on and so forth. But you aren't personally going to be able to cure that cancer. Okay, But now you start to say, okay, instead of constantly imagining what I don't want to have happen, I'm going to think about what I would rather have happen. So I'm going to start to imagine that she gets great treatment and that her cancer responds and that she comes through that treatment and she survives it and she comes out being an even stronger, healthier person. That if it's up to, if it was up to me, if I was God, that's what would happen. And I don't know if that'll make any difference, but that's where I'm going to put my energy in turn, instead of putting my energy over here. And whether it changes the outcome or not, way beyond me. But what it does do is that when people start focusing on that image, they become less anxious. You become less anxious because you feel like I'm doing what I can be doing and I'm putting my energy into what I want to see happen. Does that make sense? And there's a lot of principles of suggestion that are at at work there. There's a couple analogies I use for people. One is... um, I'm not a skier myself, a mountain biker, and I've skied. I don't know how many of you are, but you can imagine being a skier. So imagine that you're up on the top of a very steep, very challenging ski run. What you want to do when you're up there at the top, before you start, before you push off, you want to check it all out. And you want to say, hey, there's a big rock over here. I don't want to bump, hit that. There's big trees over here. I don't want to hit those. Then what you want to do, and any skier will tell you that you want to see what the line is that takes you through safely through those things. And once you start skiing and you're going fast or riding your bike downhill or any other thing that's like that, what you want to focus on is you want to focus on where you want to go, not on where you don't want to go. Because if you fixate on that rock, you will crash into it. Because that is how your body-mind is put together. It tends to go where you look. The other example I use for people is if you want to hit a bullseye in a dartboard, it helps if you look at it. Okay? If you look at it, you're not guaranteed to hit it, but you're much more likely to hit it than if you close your eyes or your attention is just over the place. And if you keep looking at it, even if you keep missing, your whole nervous system is wired to recruit resources and to control your body so that you get closer and closer to it and that you hit it more and more often. So it's, it's goal setting, it's focusing your intention on what you want to have happen. Does that make sense? Without doing that, I was talking to a psychiatrist friend of mine the other day about this, and he says, he says you know, I think you're talking about intention deficit disorder. 
Because a lot of this comes down to whether how much control we can have about where we put our attention. So we put our attention in this case on a. If you're a prayer, if you're a, a religious person and you have a way of praying, then you pray for the outcome that you desire. If you're not a religious person, if you don't pray, you visualize or you intend it. You say, if it's up to me, I'm I'm worried that my friend will succumb. I don't want that to happen. But the way that I'm going to th- I'm going to put my energy into her getting better, into imagining that she gets better. And if nothing else, it'll help you. It'll help reduce your anxiety level. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot. So the other thing is, is that on the other side, if it's something that you can change, there's a whole couple of processes for doing this. One of the questions is sometimes people don't act on things that they can change because they feel like they don't have cert- they don't have enough creativity. They haven't been able to solve a problem. They don't have the guts, the courage to act on it. They don't have the assertiveness. They don't have the confidence. So imagery, and I'm going to hopefully share with you an imagery that you can experiment with yourself, is a fantastic way of both accessing and building these kinds of personal qualities in yourself so that you can be more effective in making changes that you want to, okay, and leading to an action that can actually resolve these problems. So imagery is a type of thinking people often say that involves your senses, thoughts that you can see, hear, smell, feel, you know, daydreams. It's a language, it's an emotional language. It's a synthetic gestalt language. It's a language of the arts. It's, you know, all the visual arts, drama, um, poetry, painting, even music, dance, images that bring convey a lot of information, but not in the same way that an equation conveys information. But it makes sense. You know, it's the difference between listening. I think Einstein once said, said you could break a Beethoven sonata down into wavelengths and frequencies, but you'd be missing the point. You know, so there's that linear scientific part. There's that experiential part. We're after that. So imagery is a natural way that we think. It's very closely linked to the emotions. It's a natural, if you think about it as a coding language, it's a coding language of the emotional intuitive brain. And it's just that we haven't had much education in using it. And runaway imagination is probably the primary source of modern stress. It's not just what's happening, it's what you think will happen to you and how it will affect you that sends the signals down into your body. On the other hand, developing a skillful imagination, one that can, one that you can use to send messages of calmness, of confidence, creativity, of there's a lot of different ways to use it. Your most potent tool for stress relief. But you need to learn some skills in order to use it on purpose. So the imagery, what the imagery does is if we're having problem that we can't solve in that cortex, the imagery brings the limbic brain into, it brings the emotional intuitive intelligence to that issue or problem. So it just brings a whole other big area of the brain to bear on whatever the problem is. So it doesn't take anything away. It adds intelligence to your problem solving. So you can calm your brain with imagery, just like you can... You can um, Make it anxious. You know, 
I could I could take you through a little imagery, just ask you to imagine the scariest thing you've ever been through. Don't do that right now. If we went through it and had you really, you know, what do you see, what do you hear, what do you smell, imagine you're there again, you could work up pretty good anxiety. If I ask you instead to imagine that you go to a place that's peaceful and beautiful to you and that you just love to be in, where you have nothing to do and it's safe and it's the right temperature and notice what you see and hear and smell and immerse yourself in that daydream, your brain will send messages down through the limbic system, down into the lizard brain. It'll say it looks beautiful, peaceful, and safe. It sounds beautiful, peaceful, and safe. It smells nice. It's peaceful here. It's safe. Hit the all clear button, and your body will shift into that. So there's that place is where, right now, do I want to focus my attention? What, th- what train of thought do I want to put my attention on? And again, few people have ever really been taught this. So we have got, um, I'll get to the commercial aspect later, but it's one reason that I've devoted as much time as I have to writing books and doing audio CDs and downloads for to teach people these skills. They're very they're simple skills. Your imagination is your birthright. It's built into you. Nobody ever really just taught you how to do some fairly simple but potentially profound um moves with them that can literally change your life depending on what you're doing you know it can certainly improve your life so rather than talk with you more i want to offer you a chance let's do would you like to do some imagery some guided imagery instead we'll rest your left brain we'll fan it off, cool it off. So I want to share with you a fairly simple imagery that we call evocative imagery. How many of you have used guided imagery on purpose before? So a fair number, maybe maybe half or a little more than half. So this is a way to use imagery to help you access particular quality that you might want to have more of. Okay, and that could be you know, it could be courage, could be confidence, could be creativity, could be patience, could be humor, could be assertiveness, uh, any quality that you want to think about. And the way that we usually use this, um, and you could do this, is to think about a situation that you've got going on that you have had difficulty solving or resolving. And you just feel like you just haven't been able to resolve it. And it seems like something that you could potentially solve or resolve. Well, you just don't feel you have enough fill-in-the-blank to do this. You need a little more, again, courage, assertiveness, patience, humor, whatever it is. Okay. If you can't think of one right off the bat, just think about a quality that you would, that you would like to experience more of in yourself. Joy, calmness, again, confidence, self-love, you know, whatever floats your boat. Just some quality you'd like to experience more of. And give it a name. Think about what the name of it. And you could do a couple of qualities. I wouldn't do more than, you know, sometimes it's unclear what you need more of. I feel like I need more... I don't know if it's courage or I need more strength. 
So you could do them both kind of together, kind of know what you're after. But think about a specific quality or a couple qualities that you would just like to feel more of in yourself. Okay? And then let yourself be as comfortable as you can be in your, in your seats. You can close your eyes. You don't have to. But it's usually easier to pay attention to your imagination and your inner world if you do. And then just let yourself take a couple of deeper breaths in your breathing. Let your breathing get a little deeper into your abdomen. And let your out-breath be kind of a letting-go kind of a breath. And without forcing anything or straining, just, again, drawing a deeper breath into your, into your abdomen, into your belly. Letting the out-breath be a letting-go kind of a breath. Just inviting your body to begin to soften or relax. And just another time or two, as you welcome the breath into your body, just notice that you're literally bringing fresh energy and oxygen into your body. You can invite it to circulate and flow around your body in the bloodstream to every cell of your body. Brings fresh energy. And as you let the breath out, if you like, just let it be an invitation to your body, your mind, even your spirit, to just let go of any tension or discomfort you don't have to hold right now. And you don't even have to worry about whether you know what you need to hold or what you can let go of. Just invite the body to soften, the mind to begin to quiet. And invite your body to continue to soften and relax, perhaps to become more, a little more spacious, without worrying about how it does that. Feel sh- free to shift or move to be even more comfortable. And if you haven't already, let yourself go inside to a place that's very beautiful to you. Let yourself daydream yourself to a place that's very beautiful, peaceful, safe. And that might be a place that you've actually been in your life, either in your outer life or even in your inner life. Or it might be a place that just comes to mind right now, an imaginary place or some combination. It doesn't really matter as long as it's a place that's beautiful to you and peaceful and safe. And if more than one place comes to mind, just pick whichever one attracts you the most right now. And imagine in your own way that you're actually there. And take a few moments to just look around and notice what you imagine seeing in this beautiful, peaceful place. Notice the colors and the shapes and the things that are there. And don't worry about whether it's very vivid and clear, like like your usual eyesight, or whether it's kind of vague, or it comes and goes. But just notice what you imagine is there in this peaceful, beautiful place, safe place. And notice what you imagine hearing in that place, or if it's just very quiet. Notice any sounds you imagine hearing. Notice if there's an aroma or a fragrance or 
a quality of the air. And notice what time of day or night it seems to be. And I wonder if you can tell what season of the year it is. Just notice. Find the spot in that place where you feel most comfortable and at ease. And just trusting your instincts, just like a a dog or a cat will circle around and find the most comfortable place to be. And let yourself get comfortable there. And then think about a quality that you'd like to feel more of. The name of a quality, a particular quality or feeling state that you'd like to feel more of. And then let yourself go back in your memory to some time when you experienced yourself having that quality in yourself. Just let your memory go back to some time when you felt that quality in yourself. And some of you may not have a memory of having that quality. So let yourself go to some time when you witnessed somebody else expressing that quality or embodying that quality. And that could be a real person or a fictional person or a historical person. And if you found a time when you yourself had this quality, imagine that you're there again now. And notice what you see, what you hear, what you feel. As you're feeling that particular quality within you. And if you're imagining somebody else embodying that quality, Imagine that you bring them inside you so that you can feel what it feels like to have that quality inside you. And then notice where you feel that quality most strongly in your body. You might want to just gently scan through your body with your attention from head to toe and back up as if your attention were a sonar beam or a radar beam. And just see if you've, where do you feel that particular quality most strongly in your body? Is it strongest in your feet or your legs, your pelvis, your abdomen, your chest, your neck and shoulders? arms and hands, in your face. Just notice wherever it seems to be strongest. And let it grow a little bit larger. Imagine that you can just allow it to grow a little bit larger and stronger, just a little bit. And notice how it feels to feel that quality in yourself. And notice what your posture wants to be like as you feel that quality more strongly in yourself. And if you're comfortable with it, 
Imagine that you turn up the volume on that quality, like you had a control, like a volume control on a radio or television, and you turn it up so that it radiates out from wherever it's centered in all directions, radiates out and begins to fills your body with that particular quality. And as you feel that in your face, notice how your face feels. And as you feel that quality, notice what you imagine your voice would be like if you were in touch with that quality when you spoke. And if you like the feeling of this quality, go ahead and turn it up even more so that it overflows the space of your body and fills the space around your body for a foot in every direction. And imagine that it radiates inside your body and touches every cell in your body with that quality from the deepest part of your bone marrow to your bones to your connective tissues your muscles the organs in your pelvis your abdomen in your chest, especially your brain, your spinal cord, and your nervous system, as if every cell of your body were touched by a ray of this quality, as if you were a sponge and you were bathing in this quality and could soak up as much as you like. And if you like, you can turn it up even stronger and bigger, fill the space around your body for several feet in every direction. You can experiment with that. Never turn it up so strongly that you're uncomfortable. But if, you're, if you like the way it feels, imagine you can turn it up that there's a, an abundant source of this quality. And you can turn it up so that you fill the space around your body for 12, 15, 20 feet around. Fill the room with it. Fill the Bay Area with it. Fill the world with it. Just experimenting. And then let yourself turn the volume to whatever is most comfortable for you right now. No matter how strong or weak, how big or small that is. Just give yourself permission to let it be like listening to music when you're all by yourself. Whatever volume is most comfortable for you right now is exactly the right volume. And just let yourself rest in that for a few more minutes. And just take a moment before you bring your awareness back into the room. Take a moment to review what's happened in this brief imagery experience. What quality you were looking to experience more of. Whether you have or not. What it was like. And if there's anything in particular that you want to bring back from this experience and remember when you come back to the outer world. Before you come back to the outer world, take a moment 
If there's a particular situation that you wanted more of the more of this quality in order to address, imagine addressing that situation while being in touch with this quality. And just notice whatever you notice. Notice whether it seems the same or different in any way. Whether bringing more of this quality into the situation seems to change anything about it or your relationship to it. And before you come back to the outer world, just remember that you can recall this quality, access it, feel it, build it more strongly in yourself anytime you like, just by going through this process again. And so when you're ready, just let the images go back to wherever they came from and become aware of the room that we're in together and just gently start to bring your awareness from your inner world back out to the outer world, us in this room here together. And if you like, just very gently stretch your body and feel your fingers and toes and everything in between. I want to give you just a few minutes to write or draw anything that you want to remember about this experience. This is just for you. I'm going to give you about three or four minutes just to write or draw anything. And I would recommend that you do it, whatever happened, even if nothing happened. Just take three or four minutes and write about the experience, especially about anything that you want to remember that you thought was important or that you thought was interesting about this experience. Let's just have some discussion. Um, comments, questions. Did everybody hear that? You know, it, sometimes you get into such a stressful state and an anxious state. It's just, you know, that she's had experiences where relaxation guided imagery have been very useful. And other times when she's been so stressed and so anxious and upset that she, she couldn't even get into it, or if she did, it just didn't even touch it. And yes, that can, that can happen. This is not a magic panacea. So um, sometimes that's a place where you can use somebody else to help you um, or to take enough time or to do some things that are like get a massage, take a hot tub, talk to, you know, talk to a friend. This is a place where medications may come in. I find a double shot of Jack Daniels works really well. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't recommend it as a daily diet, but it certainly helps really get your anxiety level down. And you may be able then to, to relieve enough of the anxiety that you can pay attention to these things. So there are, there are many other things we can do, from medications to nutrients to, you know, to, uh, to other relaxants, to doing whatever you need to get to that place where you can focus. One of the qualities of imagery thinking is that it can help you connect with a bigger picture and how things are connected in kind of a bigger picture. So that can include your faith, or you may find, well, if, it ha- if that happens, I don't want that to happen, but maybe there's a good part of it, or maybe, um, or maybe I can, I'll just deal with it the best that I can. So if that's just to expand the picture and let yourself kind of go out to what the consequences might be. Because that's part of really sorting it into things that you might be able to do something about and things you can't do something about is to let yourself run it out. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So um, so sometimes when people are making treatment choices that are very difficult, I'll ask them, I'll invite them to imagine 
that they're at a crossroads. Again, this happens when, and if they go down this road, they choose this kind of treatment. And just imagine walking down that road and just imagine it going as far as you can and see what you imagine. Go down this road, well, go down as far as you can, see what you imagine. And along the way, you're just going to like flesh out the picture. And part of that's going to be able to see, is there something I can do about that? Is there not something I can do about that? Which one do I imagine is going to ultimately be better for me? And kind of make that choice. What's the difference between imagining going to the beach and being at the beach? You know, So imagining being in a quiet, peaceful, safe place is the next best thing to actually being there. You know, And it has certain advantages in that you can go anytime you want. And, it's, and you can be there very quickly. And it's very inexpensive. You know, so you can go to, you know, so I'd like to go to the beach in Hawaii a lot, you know. But I can't go every day because I work, you know, and I have responsibilities and so on. I'm lucky if I can go every couple of years. But I can, when I decide I've had enough, I need a break, I can take a few deep breaths and I can close my eyes and I can be back on a particular, floating in the water just off of a beach and I can immerse, when I do immerse myself and take the time to notice the different sensory qualities, what we know now from looking at brains on the functional MRI is that if I make an effort to notice what I imagine seeing and hearing and feeling and the weightlessness of my body as I'm floating and the lapping of the waves and the surf and the smell of the plumerias and the humidity in the air, and I go through all that sensory stuff, that when I'm Noticing what I'm seeing, the part of my brain that processes vision is active. When I'm noticing the sounds I'm hearing, the parts of my brain that process sound is active. When I'm noticing the sensory details, that part of my brain's sensory cortex is active. So what you have is you have more and more parts of your cortex sending messages down to those lower, more reflexive parts of your brain, and they're saying, it looks like I'm in Hawaii, sounds like I'm in Hawaii, it feels like I'm in Hawaii, uh, it smells like I'm in Hawaii, and that part of your brain just goes, okay, you know, all clear, sends out the all clear signal, and a lot of things in your body start to go to work in a more effective manner that haven't been able to work as well when you're constantly reacting to messages of, look out, what's next, how am I going to get that done, danger, 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 threat, problem, so on and so forth which is where we spend so much of our time. And that's, so this little lizard brain is sitting there, look out, look out, look out, look out, look out. Right? And it's constantly getting the body prepared for that, and that's exhausting. So if we're spending 98% of our waking time and half our sleeping time dealing with those kinds of things, we see why we get exhausted, we get wired and tired, we have trouble sleeping the body starts to signal that it needs something. So finding a way to get to those deeper levels and plug in a couple of those relaxation places as just a basic tool is, I think, one of the real fundamental benefits of guided imagery, which is a type of meditation at that level. And I really appreciate your attention. Thank you very much. I hope it was useful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.